the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcedon Report number 98, October 1973. St. Paul declared that, quote, after the flesh, unquote, that is judged by human standards, as Moffat renders 1 Corinthians one twenty-six, not many elite men were in the ranks of the church. To become a Christian in the early centuries was to be disqualified from consideration as a gentleman and a scholar. The Romans regarded membership in this new faith as disgraceful. However, as time passed, it became more and more apparent that what Rome had was totalitarian and repressive power, and what the church had was the thinkers of the day. Charles Norris Cochran's Study of Christianity and Classical Culture, New York, Oxford University Press, 1944, makes clear how Brankerup Roman thought had become. Rome had no real argument against Christianity and substituted brutal force for intelligence. It reached a point where Constantine recognized that the empire was suicidal in waging war against its best element, a point his successors usually failed to realize, for they favored humanistic doctrines thinly disguised as Christianity. The intellectual leadership had passed into the hands of the Christians in spite of all persecution, because they alone provided a faith for the future. Not all Rome's power, nor its attempts first to eliminate the new faith, and second, to use it as social cement, succeeded in deferring the day of bankruptcy and collapse. Rome had attempted to substitute power for faith and it finally had few who trusted in or believed in the ability of Rome's power to save them. Rome was not so much overthrown, but rather it crumbled away. The Christendom, which arose out of the ruins of the empire and on barbarian soil, had a major task in that it had the great handicaps to overcome in the new Europe. Barbarians who practiced human sacrifice social and moral anarchy, and an extensive absence of continuing authority. The new order, however, was marked by an emphasis on youth. It is startling to see how, from Boethius to Calvin, youth marked the thinkers of the new era. Whether orthodox or heterodox, men of intellect came to the fore in their early years. Boethius wrote his first work at 20 years of age, Anselm of Canterbury was prior in Lebec at 30. Bonaventura 
was a university teacher at 27, at 36 the general of the Franciscan order. Many others can be cited who gained eminence in their youth. John Calvin, born in 1509, wrote his Institutes in 1536, and it was not his first work. Men found themselves quickly gained eminence early and found that ideas readily had consequences because however much denied at times in practice, men recognized the priority of faith and intelligence. Christian thinkers ceased to be the elite men of Western culture with the Enlightenment. There had been a blackout previously with the Renaissance. It is not an accident that pietism and the Enlightenment arose at the same time. As Christian thinkers retreated from the world and regarded the inner, spiritual realm as the only valid sphere for the faith, so the vacuum which remained was occupied by the new humanist, the men of the Enlightenment. Society is an act of faith. Power cannot bind men together. At best, it can compel a sullen submission, but even then, a serious problem remains. Without a faith to give meaning and direction to the power structure, not only is it impossible to convince the men who are herded into submission by guns to have any hope in the power structure, but it also becomes progressively difficult to convince the men who hold the guns that there is any sense to what they are doing. The Red Army under Trotsky was motivated by a savage zeal for their cause, Today, the new czars of Russia do not trust their own army. Soldiers, whether on patrol or on the rifle range, are given a numbered amount of ammunition and must return the same number of empty or full shells each day. There is a fear of what the men might do if free access to the power of bullets were to exist. At the beginning of the 17th century, Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish thinkers were agreed on one thing, the necessity for godly rule and for a godly concept of society. They disagreed on what the specific nature of that rule should be. By the end of the 17th century, men in all three groups had come to accept the idea of secular, humanistic rule of a society built on a social contract with, not faith, but self-preservation as the key. The purpose of religion was now seen as a duty to convert men and make them moral, but to leave the rest of life to secular man. The inner world belonged to God. It was held, but the outer world was a neutral realm at best. The men of the early 17th century saw religion not only as conversion and morality, but also as godly rule in every area of life. By the end of the 19th century, the secular world began to feel the necessity of claiming the inner world also. Fraud insisted that the whole of the supposedly spiritual realm was a product of the unconscious and within the province of humanistic science. The problem of guilt was also made a scientific rather than a religious concern. C.R.J. Rushdoony, Fraud Nutley, New Jersey, The Craig Press, 1965-1972. Religion itself began to turn more rapidly into another area of humanistic thought and to surrender its theological character. 
Christians had surrendered the world to the enemy willingly. They were busy asserting that it is a virtue to be unconcerned about the problems of this world. As a recent bestseller representing this policy of surrender states, quote, We should be living like persons who don't expect to be around much longer. Unquote. Hal Lindsey, The Late Great Planet Earth, page 145. What was once said of a famous senator can also be said of these men. Theirs is a trumpet that always sounds retreat. The churchmen have surrendered the world to the enemy, and the humanists, having tried one remedy after another, now have essentially only one more answer, more power. As in the days of Rome, this is a confession of bankruptcy. It is also a threat to peace, because the man without a philosophy has not answer but brute force. But brute power is impotent as a constructive force. It can only destroy. The necessity for Christian reconstruction has never been greater. Chalcedon Report number 99, November 1973. For well over 500 years now, Western civilization has been in a state of civil war with two aspects thereof in a growing conflict with one another. These two contending forces are humanism and Christianity. Humanism began its rise to power in the medieval era, and its strength was such that it captured the church, much of the academic world, and the state as well. The so-called Renaissance was the victory celebration of the triumphant humanist. While preserving the form of Christendom and the church, the humanists put them to other uses. Lorenzo Valla openly turned to anti-Christian standards as the New Yardstick, without bothering to deal with the Bible as a serious source of law. The source of all virtuous action, Lorenzo Valla held, is man's natural bent to pleasure. Ficino held that virtue and love were responses to beauty. However, much these and other men disagreed as to the true standards for life. They were agreed that God should not be the source of standards, but that man and man's reason is the yardstick in terms of which all things must be judged. The standard, it was held, is man and the moment. Ficino's inscription in the Florentine Academy concluded thus, quote, Flee excesses, flee business, and rejoice in the present. Unquote. For these men, the church was to be the instrument for a new kind of salvation, a refined Christianity informed and remade by humanism. As Cronin has pointed out, Botticelli's painting of the birth of Venus was an expression of this faith. The symbolism of Venus in this portrayal means that, quote, natural love, purified, is about to become Christian love, eros, to become agape, unquote. Vincent Cronin, The Florentine Renaissance, page 211, New York, Dutton, 1967. The unnatural union between biblical faith and humanism was shattered by the Reformation. In the regrouping of forces which followed, it gradually became clear that more basic than the division between Protestant and Catholic was the division between Christendom and humanism. 
Both branches of the church were quickly infiltrated by humanism, and with the French and Russian revolutions, two things became clear. First, the old attempts at synthesis and union had been discarded. Humanism was now strong enough to stand on its own to judge and condemn biblical religion. Second, it was also clear that however much the facade of synthesis has since been offered to Christendom, the real issue is a war to death. In the Marxist world, the persecution of Christians and Orthodox Jews has not diminished with the years. A very considerable number of the people in the slave labor camps are there for religious reasons, and their persecution is savage and intense. The triumph of status humanism has been very nearly complete in that virtually every state in the world is either dominated by or under the influence of this alien faith. At the same time, however, the growing bankruptcy and imminent collapse of humanism has been increasingly in evidence. By replacing God with man as the new ultimate and absolute, humanism has introduced moral anarchy into the world. If every man is his own God and law, then no order is rationally possible. Humanism, having defied rationality, must now use the irrational and coercive power of the socialist state to hold society together. Moreover, having denied that there is any truth beyond man, humanism has surrendered the world outside of man to total irrationality. There is no meaning, purpose, or truth in the world. It is held to be mindless, meaningless, brute factuality. But man, once seen as the principle of reason in the universe, has since fraud been seen as himself irrational, and meaningless, so that man no longer can find truth or meaning anywhere. The world and man are essentially pointless and meaningless. The fact that church, school, and state have all been captured by this bankrupt humanism makes the crisis all the greater. The bankruptcy of humanism makes all the more urgent a return to a consistent and thorough commitment to biblical faith, to biblical law, and to a biblically governed world and life view. It means, too, that the opportunity for the resurgence of such a faith has never been greater. As the crisis of the 20th century deepens, the opportunity will become more and more obvious. Men will not long cling to a humanism which cannot provide them with anything to satisfy either their mind or body. One man speaking of modern humanistic politics, once told me, quote, Sure, the system is rotten and senseless, but it still gives me a good living, unquote. There are millions like him, feeding on the relics of humanistic civilization. Every day, however, the emptiness of humanism becomes more apparent. Its money is progressively bankrupt, its politics corruption, and its education mindlessness. As a result, since nothing has any meaning, bad taste, vulgarity, profanity, and insanity are enthroned as, quote, art, unquote, to express total contempt for all things. 
As one very popular modern, quote, musician, unquote, said recently, quote, Sometimes I think I'm playing for the lunatic fringe. Luckily, it is widening. In fact, I think it is outdistancing the mainstream, unquote. Kinky and Country Music, L.A. Times Calendar, page 68, Sunday, September 30th, 1973. But the cultivation of insanity is the cultivation of irrelevance and death. Such people will not be with us long. The question of importance is, will we stand and move in terms of God's word and law? Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushton. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me.
the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.